Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It was Great Britain in 1940 and Germany was doing its best to destroy every factory and railhead, sending bombers nightly over the tiny island nation to deliver their payloads and crush the will of the British people who stood in their way. Britain was in desperate straits. Her cities were being bombed day and night. Food was on severe rations, and all her eligible men were off fighting in the air, on land, and on the sea. The women of Great Britain fought the war on the ground, keeping the kids from starving, rushing them to shelters when the air raid sirens peeled, and volunteering for jobs to help support the war effort. Dorothy and her friend Mabel wanted to help with the war effort, so they woke up every morning at 4.30 a.m. and took the train to Hidington Station, then a bus to A Cliff Munitions Factory, where they worked nearly non-stop, night and day, loading munitions. Their job was to weigh cordite, put it carefully into linen bags, and sew gunpowder on top. This was sent down the line to another group who would place the bags into 25-pound shells. Then the next group would place the detonator on top. When the air raid siren sounded, the lights would go out and they would freeze in position until they came on again. They took some earth-shaking close hits, but never a direct hit. The site for A-Cliff munitions had been chosen well, being located in a marshy area that was always shrouded in mist and out of the public eye, invisible to bombers overhead and curious eyes on the ground. One bomb, even a close one, and the whole place would go up like a tinderbox, and every worker knew it. They were searched, and if anyone was found with matches, it was an instant dismissal. They wore protective clothing and shoes that didn't cause any friction. One spark from their clothing, and they would be blown to pieces. And their hair had to be tucked into a turban. One night, one girl in the next block got her hair stuck in a machine and was killed. And that was when turbans became the rule. There were other accidental deaths and injuries, but it was all kept quiet. This was a top-secret facility. Their work was their life, and rightly so, for their work was keeping their country alive, one day after the next, because they would never surrender. But there were Brits who had surrendered. Many still lived in Great Britain and spied for the Germans. They could be a neighbor, a postman, a hairdresser, anyone. 
so you had to keep quiet about whatever you or your family members did. Some who had already broken and swore their allegiance to Hitler had left for the protection of Germany. The worst of these were the ones who worked for the German propaganda machine. They knew things, and they could strike terror into the hearts of men and women in England as well as doubt and fear. Their voice on the radio, and it was always on there. You just had to turn the dial to find it. And everyone did, out of a sort of morbid curiosity. The voices were always pleading with them to come to their senses, to surrender, to help the German cause. They turned neighbor against neighbor. And those things they seemed to know were personal. Everything and everyone in every little town. The school principal, the name of the local constable, the stores, the meeting places. No matter how top secret anything was, the Germans seemed to have a way to find out. They knew there was a munitions factory, and they knew it was an A-cliff. Imagine their fear when one of those radio personalities, nicknamed Lord Haw Haw, signed in with his usual Germany calling, and after playing the first round of music, said with glee that sooner or later they would find the right spot in A-cliff to drop their payloads, and all those munitions factory workers would become the A-cliff angels going up in a big ball of smoke. That was the kind of terror that the radio announcers who worked for the propaganda machines of Germany and Japan could inspire. Why did people listen? First and foremost, the Germany call-in show, like many that followed, and which was broadcast to all the Allies either on radio or shortwave, was the only place listeners could turn to to get the names of loved ones who had gone missing behind enemy lines. They had to listen to all the other propaganda garbage to get them, but it couldn't be helped, as any kind word about a missing relative or a friend was better than no word at all, which was what they were getting. Then it was curiosity, and maybe the opportunity to look the devil in the face and laugh at him at least in terms of giving the radio voice an innocuous nickname, like Lord Haw Haw, and knowing that Germany's best propaganda tools were not having any effect, at least on you. Britain wasn't going down. Not now. Not ever. Today, a memorial to the A-Cliff Angels stands in Newton A-Cliff Town Center. It often stands alone, unwatched, ignored by passerbys on their way to work. It was designed by Phil Townsend and shows two women having a break from work. Several of the angels and hundreds of local people were present for the unveiling and blessing of the memorial. The angels also received national recognition at a ceremony at Coventry Cathedral. Like millions of their countrymen and women, quiet heroes who stood tall in the times of crisis, Then, after the ceremony, all quiet, and just another monument to a time long forgotten by most. In today's episode, The Voices of Treason, we'll take you back to the World War II era and bring back some long-forgotten events and very hard times, and take another look at the people who did their best to create and exploit weakness in the minds of their own countrymen during wartime, 
traitors to their own countries, people that enjoyed using and abusing the power of the mind for purposes of radio and propaganda, a weapon just as powerful as any weapon ever devised. From Lord Haw Haw to Tokyo Rose and Axis Sally, we'll unlock some old memories, so stay with us. It's going to be an interesting ride. The Lynn Corner. And I'd just like to say that when the Lynn Corner, it pays to listen. Good evening, women of America. Well, you know, as time goes on, I think of you more and more. I can't somehow seem to get you out of your, out of my head. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room, thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother, who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. Hello, North America. Germany calling. We're operating again over six stations, two in the 25, and the others in the 28, 31, 41, and 49 meter band. We now present Lord Hall speaking to England. To save the British Empire, it's in danger today, would be a very feeble understatement. Never before has it been in such a perilous position. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thanks to all of you who have taken the time recently to send us kind reviews at Apple Podcast. They help keep us in the rankings, which helps us to be discovered by new listeners all around the world. Today we're taking you back to the World War II era, when the entire world was at war, in an attempt to preserve democracies and free countries and Pacific Islands from Nazi and Japanese domination. We'll briefly cover the definition of treason, explain how it has been determined and enforced in the U.S. and the U.K. since 1800, who has been accused of it, and then cover the story of the voices of treason, the radio personalities who used radio to demoralize their own countrymen during wartime. If you've never heard of Lord Hee Haw, Axis Sally, and Tokyo Rose, you're about to. And in the process, you'll be delivered to a time when radio was the only timely contact with the world outside your door. It's a step into history, a very frightening time, that will leave an impression on you. I have always wondered why traitors to our country, specifically Americans who sell information to our enemies in peacetime or in a time of war, or two, Americans who go AWOL from our military forces and give information to our enemies about our forces' strength in those areas. Or three, Americans who, for political reasons, leak classified information to news media, information that could endanger our intelligence operations. And I wonder why they're rarely punished, and when they are, the punishment is unusually slight. I found 
after researching that the answer lies in our Constitution. When our Constitution was drafted, its drafters were just twelve years beyond having committed treason against the King of England, and were very wary of seeing how it had been used in Britain, France, and elsewhere as a means to silence political opposition. They needed to draft something better, and they did, and it was less open to being manipulated for political gain. When it was completed, the U.S. Constitution's definition of treason was the most restrictive of its time. Its two-witnesses provision was unprecedented and is unique today in American law. The drafters foresaw a time when one political party could become so strong that they could call anyone in an opposing party that they didn't like a traitor, have them convicted for treason, and thus solidify their power. As a consequence, it's been rarely prosecuted in America. Benedict Arnold, the American whose name is synonymous with treason, fled to England in 1779 before he could face charges for treason, and he died peacefully in England. Here is the reference to treason in the Constitution and a selection of prosecutions. Article 3, Section 3. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason, unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or on confession in open court. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attainted. And attainder of treason referred to a practice in Europe at that time of impoverishing, ostracizing, and banishing a traitor's family and his descendants. Here's a list of the men and women convicted of treason, first in the UK and then in the US, since 1800. In the UK, John Amory, for trying to recruit soldiers and broadcasting propaganda for Nazi Germany. Robert Casement, for negotiating with Germany to provide arms to Irish revolutionaries during the First World War for use in the Irish Easter 1916 uprising. He was hanged in August of 1916. William Comstive, Charles Stanfield, Richard Addy, Benjamin Hansen, and 18 others were tried and convicted for high treason for revolt in the West Riding of Yorkshire in 1820. William Joyce, who we'll be covering in a few minutes, alias Lord Haw Haw, for broadcasting Nazi propaganda to the United Kingdom during World War II, hanged on January 3, 1946. Members of the British Free Corps, Thomas Haller Cooper and Walter Purdy, death sentences were commuted. Participants in the 1916 Easter Uprising in Ireland, Patrick Pierce, Thomas J. Clark, Thomas McDonough, Joseph Mary Plunkett, Edward Ned Daly, William Pierce, Michael O'Hanrahan, Eamon Kent, Michael Mallon, Cornelius Colbert, Sean Houston, Sean McDiarmada, James Connolly, and Thomas Kent, all shot by firing squad in May of 1916. Arthur Thistlewood, John Brunt, William Davidson, James Ings, Richard Tidd, Charles Cooper, Richard Bradburn, John Harrison, James Wilson, and John Shaw Strange, participants of the 1820 
Cato Street Conspiracy, a story that we'll get into one day. James Wilson, revolutionary, convicted and executed for high treason following his part in the Scottish insurrection of 1820. Jeremiah Brandreth, Isaac Ludlam, and William Turner convicted and executed for high treason following their part in the Pentridge Revolution of 1817. In the U.S., Philip Vigol and John Mitchell, convicted of treason and sentenced to hanging, pardoned by George Washington after the Whiskey Rebellion. John Fry's, the leader of Fry's Rebellion, convicted of treason in 1800, along with two accomplices, and pardoned that same year by John Adams. Governor Thomas Dorr, 1844, convicted of treason against the state of Rhode Island during the Dorr Rebellion, released in 1845, civil rights restored in 1851, verdict annulled in 1854. John Brown, convicted of treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia in 1859, and executed for attempting to organize armed resistance to slavery. Aaron Dwight Stevens took part in John Brown's raid and was executed in 1860 for treason against Virginia. William Bruce Mumford, convicted of treason and hanged in 1862 for tearing down a United States flag during the American Civil War. Walter Allen was convicted of treason on September 16, 1922 for taking part in the 1921 Miners' March with the coal companies and the U.S. Army on Blair Mountain, West Virginia. We covered this story in our two-part episode called Mother Jones and the Battle of Blair Mountain just recently. He was sentenced to 10 years and fined. During his appeal to the Supreme Court, he disappeared while out on bail. United Mine Workers of America leader William Blizzard was acquitted of the charge of treason by the jury May 25, 1922. Martin James Monty, United States Army Air Forces pilot, convicted of treason for defecting to the Waffen SS in 1944. He was paroled in 1960. Robert Henry Best, an American foreign correspondent who defected to Germany and began doing radio propaganda, was convicted of treason on April 16, 1948, and served a life sentence. We'll cover his story in this episode, as well as the following Voices of Treason. Eva Tokuri Dakino, who is frequently identified by the name Tokyo Rose, convicted 1949, subsequently pardoned by President Gerald Ford. Mildred Gillars, also known as Axis Sally, convicted of treason on March 8, 1949, served 12 years of a 10 to 30 year prison sentence. Tomoya Kawakita, sentenced to death for treason in 1952, but eventually released by President John F. Kennedy to be deported to Japan. A few more names from American history. Aaron Burr, you'll recognize, third vice president of the United States, planned a Mexican empire in 1807. He was sidelined politically and embittered after he killed arch-rival Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. And Burr conspired with General James Wilkinson to invade Mexico and establish an empire. Wilkinson turned him in, and Burr was tried for treason in 1807. 
based on an accusation that his empire was to include parts of the western United States. Chief Justice John Marshall, who acquitted Burr, said that to prove treason, war must actually be levied against the United States. Conspiracy to levy war is not treason. Max Hopped, the father of a saboteur, in 1942. Hopped was the father of Herbert Hopped, one of eight Nazi saboteurs convicted by a military tribunal in 1942, and one of six executed. The elder Hopped was charged in 1943 with treason for giving aid and comfort to the enemy because he had harbored his son in his Chicago apartment, bought him a car, and found him a job, knowing that he had planned sabotage. Max Hopp didn't dispute the facts. It was he who had volunteered the information to the FBI in a fruitless attempt to show that his son was manipulated by others. Instead, the father argued that he had committed the commonplace, insignificant, and colorless acts of a father. A jury convicted Hopp in 1944, but recommended mercy. He was spared death and was sentenced to life. Upholding the conviction in 1947, Supreme Court Judge Robert Jackson said, It is argued that Hopped merely had the misfortune to sire a traitor. The jury apparently concluded that the son had the misfortune of being a chip off the old block. And Tamoya Kawakita, the tormentor who came home from World War II. Kawakita, born in California, went to Japan in 1939 when he was 18 to visit his grandfather. He stayed, never renouncing his U.S. citizenship after war was declared. He was employed as an interpreter with the Japanese Nickel Company. He was never conscripted, but Japanese authorities used him as an interpreter in a prisoner of war camp. He readily joined in the abuse of American prisoners, going beyond any conceivable duty of an interpreter according to the U.S. Supreme Court. He beat some, pushed another into a cesspool, and forced the obviously ill into hard labor. After the war, he re-registered as a U.S. citizen and returned home. His former victims, who knew him as Meatball, spotted him and turned him in, and he was sentenced to death for treason in 1952. President Eisenhower commuted his sentence to life in 1953. And not on this list, spies. And one might answer, why? And this is one last point we can make before we get to Lord Haw Haw and the others and their stories. You've already noticed that we haven't covered those who were convicted of espionage. A story for another time. But the two crimes are very similar and sometimes overlap. Many of you are quite aware of this difference but it never hurts to reiterate. Espionage is an act where a person or an individual obtains information that is considered to be confidential or secret and turns it over to another person or organization. When talking about treason, it is a serious betrayal of one's own nation or sovereign state. With respect to wartime radio propaganda, that's treason, provided it's done against your own country. When facing conviction, the traitor, if possible, does his or her best to convince the accusers that they were coerced in some way to do it. And others proud of what they did, like William Joyce, a.k.a. Lord Ha Ha, 
offered no excuses. Hello, North America. Germany calling. We're operating again over six stations. Two in the 25 and the others in the 28, 31, 41, and 49 minute band. We now present Lord Hall speaking to England. To save the British Empire, it's in danger today, would be a very feeble understatement. Never before has it been in such a perilous position. Until Roosevelt and Churchill so needlessly provoked Japan into taking up arms, the greater part of the British Empire felt itself outside the war zone. Of course, to be outside the war zone is not necessarily to be safe. For example, Canada was secure against any attack by Germany or Italy. But she was not secure against peaceful penetration by the United States. The agreement just concluded, whereby the virtual control of her industries falls into American hands, and whereby tariffs, customs, and other functions of independence may be arbitrarily removed by a committee under American domination, this charter of Canadian subjugation was not a mushroom growth. It was rather the culmination at a suitable moment of the plans which Roosevelt and his predecessors have been making for years. Now it is all the more remarkable that the United States should be gaining such an ascendancy over the British Empire when Roosevelt's conduct of the war against Japan has been such a signal failure up to the present. Having lost his specific fleet, he can hardly afford to pose as the master of the situation. Excessive British government, their chance of success was dependent in large measure on naval supremacy. Had Britain abstained from European entanglement, had our rulers renounced the claim to meddle in European affairs, then the power of the British power in Eastern Asia might well have endured longer. It might have been possible to indulge the luxury of interfering with the peoples of Asia by refraining from the attempt to dominate Europe as well. Although in the East, the prestige of Britain has been declining for many years now. His real name was William Joyce, but radio listeners in what was left of free Europe called him Lord Haw Haw. He opened each broadcast with Germany calling, Germany calling, and then launched into a mixed bag of popular music, war news that almost always contained sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant lies about German victories and Allied defeats, and a host of small-town talk that boasted of his familiarity with life in Great Britain, and how bad it was, and how good it could be if they would just give in and surrender. The English-language propaganda radio program Germany Calling was broadcast to audiences in the United Kingdom on the medium-wave station Reichsender Hamburg, and by short wave to the United States. 
The program began in September of 1939 and continued until April of 1945, when the British Army overran Hamburg. The next scheduled broadcast was made by Horst Pinschur, a.k.a. Jeffrey Perry, a German refugee serving in the British Army, who announced the British takeover. Pinschur was later responsible for the capture of William Joyce, Lord Ha Ha. Through such broadcasts, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda attempted to discourage and demoralize American, Australian, British, and Canadian troops and the British population to suppress the effectiveness of the Allied war effort through propaganda and to motivate the Allies to agree to peace terms leaving the Nazi regime intact and in power. Among many techniques used, the Nazi broadcasts reported on the shooting down of Allied aircraft and the sinking of Allied ships, presenting discouraging reports of high losses and casualties among Allied forces. Although the broadcasts were well known to be Nazi propaganda, they frequently offered the only details available from behind enemy lines concerning the fate of friends and relatives who did not return from bombing raids over Germany. As a result, And to hammer home the point of why people listened at all was that despite the sometimes infuriating content and frequent inaccuracies and exaggerations, servicemen and family members listened in the hopes of learning clues about the fate of Allied troops and air crews. German National Socialism and Fascism were fueled by a rising and well-stoked hatred of Jews, Jews in America and Jews in Europe from the early 20s onward, but rising to a peak as Germany's economy, ruined by World War I debt, hit bottom. All of the radio propaganda, first from the German Socialist Party, later from the Third Reich, included hatred of the Jews and blamed them for rising tensions, problems, and war itself. The difference in wartime is that when you direct radio in a way to hurt or demoralize your own people, it's called treason and rightly so. The Nazis and the Japanese in World War II realized that Americans and British-speaking personalities used on the radio were a much more effective tool than using their own people. Joyce was captured by British forces in northern Germany just as the war ended, tried, and eventually hanged for treason on January 3, 1946. Joyce's defense team, appointed by the court, argued that As an American citizen and naturalized German, Joyce could not be convicted of treason against the British crown. However, the prosecution successfully argued that, since he had lied about his nationality to obtain a British passport and voted in Britain, Joyce owed allegiance to the king. As J.A. Cole has written, the British public would not have been surprised if, in that Flensburg wood where he was captured, Lord Hee-Haw had carried in his pocket a secret weapon capable of annihilating an armored brigade. This mood was reflected in the wartime film Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, made in 1942, starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, in which Joyce's broadcasts are shown to predict actual disasters and defeats, thus seriously undermining British morale. Joyce recorded his final broadcast on April 30, 1945, during the Battle of Berlin. Rambling and audibly drunk, 
he chided Britain for pursuing the war beyond mere containment of Germany and repeatedly warned of the menace of the Soviet Union. He signed off with a final, defiant, Heil Hitler and farewell. There are conflicting accounts as to whether this last program was actually transmitted despite a recording being found in the Apen studios. They calling, Germany calling. Here are the right center ambush, station Bremen and station DXB on the 31 meter band. This evening, I am talking to you about Germany. That is a concept that many of you may have failed to understand. Let me tell you that in Germany there still remains the spirit of unity and the spirit of strength. Let me tell you that here we have a united people who are modest in their wishes. They are not imperialists. They don't want to take what doesn't belong to them. All they want is to live their own simple lives. Undisturbed by outside influences. I say, Es lieber Deutschland. Heiliger. And farewell. Besides broadcasting, Joyce's duties included writing propaganda for distribution among British prisoners of war, whom he tried to recruit into the British Free Corps. He wrote a book, Twilight Over England, promoted by the German Ministry of Propaganda, which unfavorably compared the evils of allegedly Jewish-dominated capitalist Britain uh, with the alleged wonders of National Socialist Germany. Adolf Hitler awarded Joyce the War Merit Cross for his broadcast, although they never met. There were others who were anxious to be known as Lord Haw Haw until the war came to an abrupt end and men started looking for them with nooses in hand. Wolf Mittler was a German journalist who spoke near flawless English, which he had learned from his mother, who had been born of German parents in Ireland. His persona was described by some listeners as similar to the fictional aristocrat Bertie Wooster. Reportedly finding political matters distasteful, he was relieved to be replaced by Norman Bale Stewart, who stated that Mittler sounded almost like a caricature of an Englishman. It has been speculated that it was Mittler's voice which Barrington described. If so, it would make him the original Lord Hee In 1943, Mittler was deemed suspect and arrested by the Gestapo, but he managed to escape to Switzerland. After the war, he worked extensively for German radio and television. Norman Bale Stewart was a former officer of the Seaforth Highlanders who was cashiered for selling secrets to Nazi Germany. He worked as a broadcaster in Germany for a short time in 1939. 
he was caught and jailed for five years by the British after the war. For a time he claimed that he was the original Lord Haw Haw. He may have been the broadcaster the BBC referred to as Sinister Sam. The German Ministry of Propaganda was founded on March 14, 1933, a few months after the Nazi seizure of power by Adolf Hitler's government. And it was headed by Reich Minister Joseph Goebbels, who had followed Hitler's rise to power for years and would become the voice of the German people. We use care in saying that because his number one goal was to make German citizens believe he was speaking for a majority of them, when in actuality, he wasn't. But he was so good at propaganda, the ultimate spin master, that he swayed millions toward hating Jews and supporting the socialist fascist dreams of the Third Reich and Hitler. The role of the new ministry was to centralize Nazi control of all aspects of German cultural and intellectual life. An unstated goal was to present to other nations the impression that the Nazi party had the full and enthusiastic backing of the entire population. It was responsible for controlling the German news media, literature, visual arts, filmmaking, theater, music, and broadcasting, especially radio broadcasting. It was the German news media that lifted the Nazi party to power, not the people. When it all came crashing down in 1945, Goebbels had his children poisoned, then took cyanide pills next to his wife in order that he wouldn't be taken alive. In Bill O'Reilly's recent book, Killing the SS, the story of Goebbels is related, along with the story for the hunt of thousands of SS murderers who escaped Nazi Germany with the help of a variety of organizations, knowingly or unknowingly, beginning with the Red Cross and ending with the OSS, the predecessor of today's CIA, which believed that some of Hitler's finest had information and talents that we could use. Only a handful of the thousands of SS leaders and the men they ordered to commit mass murder against men, women, and children were ever caught and punished. William Joyce, Lord Hee-Haw, was the best known of Goebbels' many radio talents. On May 5th, four days after the Allies took Hamburg, the CBS war correspondent Bill Downs broadcast a report about the condition of that city using Joyce's microphone. Scripts and the microphone used by Joyce were then seized by soldier Cyril Millwood and have now come to light following Millwood's death. On May 28, 1945, Joyce was captured by British forces at Flensburg, near the German border with Denmark, which was the last capital of the Third Reich. Spotting a disheveled figure while resting from gathering firewood, intelligence soldiers, including a Jewish-German Geoffrey Perry, born Horst Pinschuer, previously mentioned, who had left Germany before the war, engaged Joyce in conversation in French and English. After they asked whether he was Joyce, he reached into his pocket, actually reaching for a false passport, but believing he was armed, they shot him through the buttocks, resulting in four wounds. Two intelligence officers then drove him to a border post and handed him to British military police. Joyce was then taken to London and tried at the Old Bailey on three counts of high treason. Not guilty were the first words from Joyce's mouth in his trial, as noted by Rebecca West in her book, The Meaning of Treason, as noted by Whitaker Chambers in his 1947 review of that book. Joyce went to his death, unrepentant and defiant. In death as in life, 
I defy the Jews who caused this last war, and I defy the power of darkness which they represent. I warn the British people against the crushing imperialism of the Soviet Union. May Britain be great once again, and in the hour of the greatest danger in the West, may the standard be raised from the dust, crowned with the words, You have conquered, nevertheless. I am proud to die for my ideals, and I am sorry for the sons of Britain who have died without knowing why. Other sources refer to his having said, May the swastika be raised from the dust. Joyce was executed on January 3, 1946, at Wandsworth Prison, age 39. As was customary for executed criminals, Joyce's remains were buried in an unmarked grave within the walls of H.M.P. Wandsworth. If you keep your eyes and ears open, especially with programming that deals with World War II, you'll hear Lord Haw Haw or his imitators in action. In various scenes in the World War II film, 12 O'Clock High, made in 1949, they have Lord Haw Haw broadcasts playing to General Gregory Peck and his bomber group. The World War II film, The Dirty Dozen, made in 1967, includes a propaganda broadcast by an English-accented person said to be Lord Haw Haw. And in Foyle's War, one of the better offerings on Netflix, and a show that I enjoyed very much, Series 4, Episode 1, Invasion. Susan's parents and farmer David Barrett are shown listening to Lord Haw Haw, and Susan's father turns it off with a derisive comment about the show. Then, there was Axis Sally. The Lynn calling. And I'd just like to say that when the Lynn calls, it pays to listen. Good evening, women of America. Well, you know, as time goes on, I think of you more and more. I can't somehow seem to get you out of, your, out of my head. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room, thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother, who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. From the deserts of North Africa to Salerno, the soft, sultry voice of Axis Sally reminded the boys that while they were away from home fighting for a lost cause, their girlfriends and wives were undoubtedly having fun with the boy next door. Mildred Elizabeth Gillars, named Axis Sally, along with Rita Zuka, were both American broadcast talents employed by the Third Reich in Nazi Germany to disseminate propaganda during World War II. Gillars was born Mildred Elizabeth Sisk in Portland, Maine, where she took the surname Gillars in 1911 after her mother remarried. At 16, she moved to Canote, Ohio with her family. In 1918, she enrolled at Ohio Wesleyan University to study dramatic arts but left without graduating, choosing to go to Greenwich Village in New York City, where she worked in various low-skilled jobs to finance drama lessons. She toured with stock companies and appeared in vaudeville, but she was unable to establish a theatrical career. She also worked as an artist's model for sculptor Mario Corbel, but was unable to find regular employment. So in 1929, she moved to France and lived in Paris for six months, then returned again to the States. But in 33, she left the U.S. again, residing first in Algiers, where she found work as a dressmaker's assistant. 
1934, she moved to Dresden, Germany, to study music, and was later employed as a teacher of English at the Berlitz School of Languages in Berlin. In 1940, soon after Germany attacked Poland and began World War II in Europe, and during the time that tens of thousands of Jews were being rounded up and imprisoned by Germans and their Soviet counterparts, she obtained work as an announcer with the Reich's Rundfucked Gesellschaft, RRG, German State Radio, where she finally made her mark as a propaganda artist for the Third Reich. To her, it didn't matter which side the money was coming from, as long as it was coming. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. By 1941, the U.S. State Department was advising American nationals to return home. However, Gilares chose to remain because her fiancé, Paul Carlson, a naturalized German citizen, said he would never marry her if she returned to the United States, according to her. Shortly afterwards, Carlson was sent to the Eastern Front, where he was killed in action. On December 7, 1941, Gillars was working in the studio when the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was announced. She broke down in front of her colleagues and denounced their allies in the East. I told them what I thought about Japan and that the Germans would soon find out about them, she recalled. The shock was terrific. I lost all discretion. She later said that she knew that such an outburst could send her to a concentration camp. Faced with the prospect of joblessness or prison, the frightened Gillars produced a written oath of allegiance to Germany and returned to work, her duties initially limited to announcing records and participating in chat shows. Gillars' broadcasts initially were largely apolitical, but this changed in 42 when Max Otto Koiswitz, the program director in the USA Zone at the RRG, cast Gillars in a new show called Home Sweet Home. She soon acquired several names amongst her GI audience, including the Berlin Bitch, Berlin Babe, Olga, and Sally, but the one most common was Axis Sally. This name probably came when asked on air to describe herself, and she had said she was the Irish type, a real Sally. On the one side, on the other, the defenders of civilization. Why is America still in the wrong camp? And now we bring you a list of names of American aviators who are prisoners of war in Germany. The first name, Fred Dale Gillogley, Jr. That name can also be Gullogley. It's spelled that way in the home address. First Lieutenant Fred Hill Gilligley Jr. or Gullogly, G-I-L-L-O-G-L-Y or G-O-L-L-O-G-L-Y. Home address, Mr. Fred D. Gullogly, 
Well, girls, and one day you're going to have your own opinion, too. The only thing I'm afraid of is that perhaps it will be too late. And that's why I'm just going to put all the energy I can into these few moments I have with you each week and try to get you to see the light of day and to let you realize that you're on the wrong side of the fence. And now, girls, I do think it would be nice to listen to a little music, don't you? The sort of music which conveys the thoughts which are in the hearts of your men over in French South Africa today, over there in the dry and hot desert. They're dreaming now of a lazy day at home, a lazy day when spring and summer meet, a lazy day when green fields are whispering of home sweet home. And now here it is, conveying all the thoughts of in the hearts of those men so far away from their mothers and wives today. No longer lonely. The town just doesn't look as bad. There's only one thing that can cure me. A real day of rest. Lazy days. When spring and summer meet. In 1943, an Italian-American woman, Rita Zucca, also began broadcasting to American troops from Rome using the name Sally. The two often were confused and even thought by many to be one and the same. Gillar's main programs from Berlin were Home Sweet Home Hour from December 24, 1942, Christmas Eve, until 1945, a regular propaganda program the purpose of which was to make the U.S. forces in Europe feel homesick. A running theme of these broadcasts was the infidelity of soldiers' wives and sweethearts while the listeners were stationed in Europe and North Africa. She questioned whether the women would remain faithful. Quote, especially if you boys get all mutilated and don't return in one piece. End quote. Opening with the sound of a train whistle, Home Sweet Home attempted to exploit the fears of American soldiers about the home front. The broadcasts were designed to make soldiers feel doubt about their mission, their leaders, and their prospects after the war. She also starred in Midget the Mike, a broadcast which occurred March through late fall of 1943, in which she played American songs interspersed with defeatist propaganda and anti-Semitic rhetoric and attacks on FDR. But the one that kept people tuning in the most was the G.I.'s Letterbox and Medical Reports in 1944 which was directed at the U.S. home audience in which Gillars used information on wounded and captured U.S. airmen to cause fear and worry in the families. After D-Day, June 6, 1944, U.S. soldiers wounded and captured in France were also reported on. Gillars and Koischewitz worked for a time from Chartres and Paris for this purpose, visiting hospital and interviewing Allied Army POWs. In 1943, they had toured POW camps in Germany, interviewing captured Americans and recording their messages for their families in the U.S. The interviews were then edited for broadcast as though the speakers were well-treated or even sympathetic to the Nazi cause. That was the G.I. letterbox. Gillars made her most notorious broadcast from the building the Germans called the Big House on June 5, 1944, just prior to the D-Day invasion of Normandy, France, 
in a radio play written by Koishwitz called Vision of Invasion. She played Evelyn, an Ohio mother, who dreams that her son had died a horrific death on a ship in the English Channel during an attempted invasion of occupied Europe. It was her performance in Vision of Invasion that ended up getting her, not an Emmy, but a conviction for treason and getting sent to the real big house, this time in the U.S. as a traitor. Gillars was attached to Koishwitz and his ideology, and it was more as a mouthpiece for him and less in pursuit of the dollar that she performed. When Koichwitz died in August of 1944, Gillars' broadcast became lackluster and repetitive without his creative energy. She remained in Berlin until the end of the war, and her last broadcast was on May 6, 1945, just two days before the German surrender. In the summer of 1945, the U.S. Attorney General dispatched Prosecutor Victor C. Warhide to Berlin to find and arrest Gillars. He and the Counterintelligence Corps Special Agent Hans Vinson only had one solid lead. Raymond Kurtz, a B-17 pilot shot down by the Germans, who recalled that a woman who had visited his prison camp seeking interviews was the broadcaster who called herself Midget the Mike. According to Kurtz, the woman had used the alias Barbara Mome. Warhide organized wanted posters with Gillar's picture to put up in Berlin, but got no bites. The breakthrough came when he was informed that a woman calling herself Barbara Mome was selling her furniture at second-hand markets around town. A shop owner who was found selling a table belonging to Gillar's was detained and, under intensive interrogation, revealed Gillar's address. When she was arrested on March 15, 1946, Gillar's only asked to take with her a picture of Koichwitz. She was then held by the Counterintelligence Corps at Camp King, Oberursel, along with collaborators Herbert John Bergman and Donald S. Day, until she was conditionally released from custody on Christmas Eve, 1946. However, she declined to leave military detention. She was formally rearrested on January 22, 1947, at the request of the Justice Department, and was eventually flown to the U.S. to await trial in 1948. She was indicted September 10, 1948, and charged with ten counts of treason, but only eight were proceeded with at her trial, which began on January 25, 1949. The prosecution relied on the large number of her programs recorded by the FCC, stationed in Silver Hill, Maryland, to show her active participation in propaganda activities against the U.S., it was also shown that she had taken an oath of allegiance to Hitler. The defense argued that her broadcast stated unpopular opinions, but did not amount to treasonable conduct. It was also argued that she was under the hypnotic influence of Koichwitz and therefore not fully responsible for her actions until after his death. And her defense was successful. On March 10, 1949, the jury convicted Gillars on just one count of treason that of making the Vision of Invasion broadcast. She was sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. In 1950, a federal appeals court upheld that sentence, and she served her sentence at the Federal Reformatory for Women in Alderson, West Virginia. She became eligible for parole in 1959 after 10 years in the lockup, 
but did not apply until 1961. She was released June 10th of 61 and went to live at the Our Lady of Bethlehem Convent in Columbus, Ohio, where she taught German, French, and music at St. Joseph Academy in Columbus. In 73, she returned to Ohio Wesleyan University to complete her degree. She died of colon cancer at Grant Medical Center in Columbus in 1988. Rita Zuka, mentioned at the top of Gillar's story, was Gillar's Italian counterpart. Zuka's father, Louis, owned a very successful restaurant in New York's Midtown District in the 30s and 40s called Zuka's Italian Garden. Located at 120 West 49th Street, the restaurant had its own promotional postcards which displayed a distinctly refined setting. Zuka spent her teenage years in a convent school in Florence and, as a young woman, had worked in the family business. She returned to Italy in 1938, working as a typist and renouncing her American citizenship three years later to save her family's property from expropriation by Mussolini's government. She was a product of Benito Mussolini's decision to try to emulate the German radio's Axis Sally broadcasts of Mildred Gillard's. In the summer of 1943, the Italian National Radio Network in Rome hired Zucca with this aim in mind, in spite of her losing a typing job in 1942 for copying an anti-fascist pamphlet. She was teamed with German broadcaster Charles Godel in the program Jerry's Front Calling. Much to Gillard's chagrin, Zucca was also referred to as Axis Sally. Zucca's trademark sign-off was A Sweet Kiss from Sally and she was often mistaken for Gillar's. According to one account, Zuka signed into each show by uttering, Hello, suckers! And her signature tune was, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Her broadcast sometimes used intelligence provided by the German embassy in Rome in an attempt to confuse Allied troops. On July 8, 1943, the night before the invasion of Sicily, Zuka's broadcast told the wonderful boys of the 504th Parachute Regiment that Colonel Willis Mitchell's Playboys, the 61st Troop Carrier Group, are going to carry you to certain death. We know where and when you're jumping, and you'll be wiped out. As the Allied armies advanced north into Rome, Zuka retreated north with the Germans in 1944 and resumed broadcasting from Milan. There, in September 1944, the broadcast crew of Jerry's Front was attached to a German military propaganda unit called the Liberty Station. She continued until her final broadcast on April 25, 1945. As the Axis Army finally collapsed, Zuka went by train to her uncle's home in Turin, where she took refuge until her identification and arrest on June 5, 1945. A correspondent from the American military magazine Stars and Stripes said that Zuka's well-known crossed-eye condition did nothing to detract from her attractiveness. True, her left eye is inclined to wander, but that cooey, sexy voice really has something to back it up. Newspapers in America were far more scathing. Soft-voiced Sally from Berlin, found to be ugly ex-New York girl, was the typical headline with descriptions of the young mother as as ugly and unattractive in person as her voice was appealing. Another journalist called her cross-eyed, bow-legged, and sallow-skinned. All attempts by the American government to prosecute Zuka for treason broke down 
when it became clear she had renounced her American citizenship before she had started broadcasting. The FBI's J. Edgar Hoover wrote to the Justice Department, In view of the fact that she has lost her American citizenship, no efforts are being made at the present time to develop a treason case against her. She was then tried by an Italian military tribunal on charges of collaboration, and in March of 1946, she was sentenced to four and a half years in prison, but was released after nine months. She was barred from returning to the United States after the Italian government declared a general amnesty for collaborators in 1946. She lived in relative obscurity in Italy until her death in 1998. Tokyo Rose was a name given by Allied troops in the South Pacific during World War II to all female English-speaking radio broadcasters of Japanese propaganda. The programs were broadcast in the South Pacific and North America to demoralize Allied troops abroad and their families at home by emphasizing troops' wartime difficulties and military losses. All set. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends. I mean our enemies in the South Pacific. Well, uh, how are my darling little goats tonight? Some being who's so sweet like to cut. We're ready again for a vicious assault on your morale. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends. I mean our enemies in the South Pacific. Well, uh, how are my darling little goats tonight? Full of beer and belligerence? I know, you still hate us, but don't let that hate be festering. It poisons the whole system. What you need is some good jive. I mean, some. Helps you relax. All set? Okay. Here's the first blow at your morale. Hey, Kaiser, singing and singing. Hey, Pop. I don't want to go to work. Need to listening. Not bad, not bad. And now, here's a news announcer with news from the American home front. As American casualties on land, sea, and in the air scorched skyward on Okinawa, repercussions of this bloody campaign and the bungling tactics of the American war leaders echoed throughout the United States. A Washington report said that the Army and Navy departments are squirming uncomfortably under a barrage of vicious charges and censor from the nation's press. Several female broadcasters operated under different aliases and in different cities throughout the empire, including Tokyo, Manila, and Shanghai. The name Tokyo Rose was never actually used by any Japanese broadcaster, but it first appeared in U.S. newspapers in the context of these radio programs in 1943. During the war, Tokyo Rose was not any one individual, but rather a group of largely unconnected women working within the same propagandist effort throughout the Japanese Empire. In the years shortly following the war, the figure of Tokyo Rose, who the FBI admitted to be mythical, became an important symbol of Japanese villainy for the United States. American cartoons, films, and propaganda videos between 1945 and 1960 tend to portray her as highly sexualized, manipulative, and deadly to American interests in the South Pacific, particularly by leaking intelligence of American losses in radio broadcasts. Similar accusations surround the propaganda broadcast of Lord Haw Haw and Axis Sally, and in 1949, the San Francisco Chronicle described Tokyo Rose 
as the Mata Hari of radio. And we did an episode on Mata Hari just recently. You'll want to check that out, called Killing Mata Hari. Tokyo Rose ceased to be merely a symbol in September of 1945 when Eva Toguri Dakino, an American-born Japanese disc jockey for a propagandist radio program, attempted to return to the United States. She was accused of being the real Tokyo Rose, arrested, tried, and became the seventh person in U.S. history to be convicted of treason. Toguri was eventually paroled from prison in 1956, but it was more than 20 years before she received an official presidential pardon for her role in the war. Although she broadcast under the name Orphan Anne, Eva Taguri has been known as Tokyo Rose since her return to the United States in 1945. An American citizen and the daughter of Japanese immigrants, Toguri traveled to Japan to tend to a sick aunt just prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Unable to leave the country when war broke out with the U.S., unable to stay with her aunt's family as an American citizen, and unable to receive any aid from her parents who were placed in internment camps in Arizona, Toguri eventually took a job as a part-time typist at Radio Tokyo. She was quickly recruited as a broadcaster for the 75-minute propagandist program The Zero Hour, which consisted of skits, news reports, and popular American music. According to studies conducted in 1968 of the 94 men who were interviewed and who recalled listening to the Zero Hour while serving in the Pacific, 89% recognized it as propaganda, and less than 10% felt demoralized by it. 84% of the men listened because the program had good entertainment, and one GI remarked, lots of us thought she was on our side all along. After World War II ended in 1945, the U.S. military detained Toguri for a year before releasing her for lack of evidence. Department of Justice officials agreed that her broadcasts were innocuous. But when Toguri tried to return to the U.S., a popular uproar ensued because Walter Winchell, a powerful broadcasting personality, and the American Legion lobbied relentlessly for a trial prompting the FBI to renew its investigation of Toguri's wartime activities. Her 1949 trial resulted in a conviction on one of eight counts of treason. In 1974, investigative journalists found that key witnesses claimed that they were forced to lie during testimony. U.S. President Gerald Ford pardoned Toguri in 1977. There were many other instances in more recent history involving personalities who became known for propaganda broadcast in wartime. And one example was a Vietnamese woman who became known as Hanoi Hanna. G.I., your government has abandoned you. They have ordered you to die, G.I. Do not trust them. Defect, G.I. It is a very good idea to leave a sinking ship. They lie to you, D.I. You know you cannot win this war. Your rich leaders grow richer while you die in the swamp, D.I. They will give you a medal, D.I., but only after you are dead. In a New York Times article titled Trin Thi Ngo, North Vietnamese propagandist known as Hanoi Hanna, dies. Written by Emily Langer, October 6th. 2016. It reads, Hanoi Hanna 
was recalled as a radio propagandist who delivered daily broadcasts aimed at undermining American morale during the Vietnam War. And the article announced that she had died September 30th in Ho Chi Minh City. The Voice of Vietnam, her longtime radio station, announced her death and reported that she was 87. No cause of death was cited. Ms. Ngo, the article went on to say, was the most famous of several North Vietnamese broadcasters who served the communist cause over the radio waves. David Lam, a respected foreign correspondent who covered the Vietnam War for the L.A. Times, once observed that many considered her Hanoi's most prominent communist after Ho Chi Minh, the revolutionary nationalist leader. She had perfected her English during her youth in Hanoi, where she was born, studying under a tutor and swooning over American films such as Gone with the Wind. Hollywood fare far outdid the European cinema imported to Vietnam during French colonial rule, according to her. American dialogue was so full of life compared to the boring French films we saw, she once told an interviewer. Because of her fluency in English, Ms. Ngo became a marquee personality on the voice of Vietnam as it evolved increasingly into an instrument of propaganda wielded against U.S. forces and prisoners of war. This is Thu Huang calling American servicemen in South Vietnam, was how the broadcast started. And they initially lasted five minutes, but grew to run for half an hour and included popular recordings from American musicians such as Elvis Presley and Bob Dylan. Having enticed homesick troops with music, Ms. Ngo would read scripts prepared by North Vietnamese officials that chronicled American battlefield defeats as well as anti-war activity and social upheaval at home. Defect GI, it is a very good idea to leave a sinking ship, she said in one broadcast. You know you cannot win this war. She aired statements from actress and anti-war activist Jane Fonda and delivered commentary on the sons of elite American families who had avoided wartime service. Relying on information from U.S. publications, Ms. Go also read aloud lists of American casualties. The objective, she said, was to make the troops a little bit sad. Jane Fonda had toured North Vietnam to make an anti-war statement and was seen on camera patting a large gun aimed at the American forces and uttering anti-American, anti-war propaganda. She became a huge propaganda tool for North Vietnam, earning her the nickname Hanoi Jane, and that's how many veterans still think of her today. Hanoi Hannah once said, Presenting news should be persuasive, not too intimate and not too tough, she said. When mentioning the war's developments, I often quoted American newspapers to make the information more objective. The message that I wanted to send to each American soldier is, You are fighting for an unjust war, and you will die in vain. American forces withdrew from Vietnam in 1973, and Saigon, the southern capital later renamed Ho Chi Minh City, fell to the North Vietnamese two years later. Among the servicemen who heard her broadcast was John McCain, the Navy officer and future Republican senator from Arizona, who was held by the North Vietnamese as a prisoner of war for five and a half years. I heard her every day, McCain told the New York Times in 2000, recalling the loudspeaker that dangled from the prison ceiling. She's a marvelous entertainer. I'm surprised she didn't get the Hollywood. And speaking of Hollywood and anti-war propaganda, 
"'We'll save that for another story.' "'Lastly, and not a voice of treason, "'but a propaganda voice that earned its place in history "'as the most laughable radio propaganda voice of all time, "'was Baghdad Bob, real name, Mohammed Saeed al-Sahaf, "'better known to American reporters and TV viewers as Baghdad Bob, "'who was the Iraqi information minister from 2001 through 2003. "'And during the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, "'his outlandish pronouncements of Iraq military supremacy "'became the source of amusement to many in the West. "'Al-Sahaf was born in Hila, Iraq, on July 30, 1944. "'After studying journalism at Baghdad University, "'he joined the Ba'ath Party, "'which came to power following a coup in 1968. "'In the coming decades, Al-Sahaf worked its way "'through the party bureaucracy, "'eventually serving as Iraqi ambassador "'to the United States, Burba, Italy, and Sweden.' Saddam Hussein, Iraq's leader, named him foreign minister in 1992, a post he held until 2001 when he was reappointed as information minister. Al-Sahaf maintained a low public profile until the start of the Iraq invasion when he began holding regular press conferences for Western media in 2003. Even as coalition forces were on the outskirts of Baghdad, Al-Sahaf continued to assert that Iraq would prevail. In the post-invasion chaos, Al-Sahaf gave a few interviews to media outlets that summer and then disappeared entirely from public view. Here's a sampling of some of his more outlandish quotes. This one as our tanks rolled through the outskirts of Baghdad. There are no American infidels in Baghdad. Never! Another. My feelings, as usual, we will slaughter them all. And this. Our initial assessment is that they will all die. And this one. No, I am not scared, and neither should you be. We will welcome them with bullets and shoes. Throwing shoes is the ultimate expression of disrespect in their culture. They're not even within a hundred miles of Baghdad. They are not in any place. They hold no place in Iraq. This is an illusion. They are trying to sell to the others an illusion. God will roast their stomachs in hell at the hands of Iraqis. The local food was succeeding in doing this, perhaps one of the few victories that could be claimed from the short war. They tried to bring a small number of tanks and personnel characters in through Aldura, but they were surrounded, and most of their infidels had their throats cut. We have destroyed two tanks, fighter planes, two helicopters, and their shovels. We have driven them back. We have surrounded them. We had them surrounded in their tanks. We made them drink poison last night, and Saddam Hussein's soldiers and his great forces gave the Americans a lesson which will not be forgotten by history. Truly. Today we slaughtered them in the airport. They are out of Saddam International Airport. The force that was in the airport? This force was destroyed. Yesterday we slaughtered them, and will continue to slaughter them. We will push those crooks those mercenaries, back into the swamp. When we were making the law, when we were writing the literature and the mathematics, the grandfathers of Tony Blair and Little Bush were scratching around in caves. Iraqi fighters in Umm Qasir are giving the hordes of American and British mercenaries the taste of definite death. We have drawn them into a quagmire, and they will never get out of it. And that's the one thing he said about them drawing us into a quagmire that we'll never get out of? 
He might have gotten that one right. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Make sure to subscribe to our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road. And if you're not an Apple user, try player.fm, castbox.fm, or stitcher.com to keep up with our shows. And Apple users, we do ask that you take a few minutes and send us a review at Apple Podcast to restore our ratings and help keep us up there. It's not always easy to find the time or know what to say, but personal stories are great. Maybe how we helped you through that last half hour of your commute or the long trip cross-country. Whatever. Or even five words recommending our show or shows. Thanks to all of you who take the time. Here's some recent reviews. This one, five stars, from Zingin' Around U.S. Oh my gosh, I cannot decide which of these is my favorite. I've listened to all of them more than once. Walking, driving, doing dishes, clipping the plants, sitting on the porch. They are everyone good, each in a way of its own. I try to get my grandkids to listen, and all my sons. And this one, excellent podcast. Five stars. Always interesting and well presented. Thanks. And that's from Orm1103. And this one, five stars. Informative, fun, and always interesting. The podcast makes available information I didn't even know I wanted to know about. Keep them coming. That's from Cliff McAllister. And this one, 1001, great informative, very few commercials. That one from Doug Damewood. And this one, five stars, love this podcast. John does a nice job of creating a fast-moving, factual narrative that is easy to follow and fun to listen to. That one from R1 Tank Builders, Apple Podcast US. And this one from Shamrock Traveler, five stars, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I find everything about this podcast very interesting, well-written, easy listening, and engaging. Thank you. And this one, from Barefoot Indy. You never know what you're going to get each week with this podcast. True history, war heroes, westerns, conspiracies, ghost stories. But it's always entertaining. I particularly like the Urban Legends series. And this one, a great listen. I really enjoy listening to this podcast. It gives me something to listen to while mowing large properties. It's well-paced, entertaining, and fascinating, which shouldn't be taken for granted, believe me. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to leave those reviews for us. We appreciate it. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.
Possible they take their place. Has not been for 48 hours. 